ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal Land. Today, the lasting effects of COVID lockdowns on new mums and babies in Victoria. The changing face of treatments for blood cancers and a mystery form of arthritis, arthritis of the hands and a likely new treatment. But before we get to those stories, Norman, you and me have obviously spent a lot of time talking about COVID-19 over the past nearly four years. We had a whole podcast about it. And one question that we got a lot was about vitamin C, whether high doses of intravenous vitamin C could help fight the virus. And it's interesting to me because I hear vitamin C talked about as a potential miracle cure for all sorts of things, which I'd love to talk about. But first, let's start with this COVID-19 trial. Well, the theory was that behind the trial, that vitamin C might protect against oxidative stress. That's like, if you like, the biological rusting that happens from oxygen when oxygen breaks off into two atoms. Um, it, it, it actually creates um, a stressful situation, which is almost like biological rust. So the idea here was, would intravenous vitamin C at high doses help people hospitalised with COVID-19? Because what, we know it's an antioxidant in like oranges and stuff like that. That's right. I'll come back to that later. So these were two randomised trials, which when people realised that there were two randomised trials going on, they decided to combine them. And there were people hospitalised with COVID-19. One group were not critically ill, but they were still in hospital. And the other group were in intensive care. Um, and they were given high-dose vitamin C uh, intravenously. And unfortunately, the results were disappointing. So they basically showed almost no, they basically showed no benefit at all. And if anything, they showed some harm. So n- not a recommended treatment for COVID-19. That is, that is disappointing. People were pinning their hopes on that. But it does raise that issue of whether high-dose vitamin C could be useful for other conditions. Yes. Well, the premise behind that trial was actually wrong. Um, As you implied, when you take low-dose vitamin C in the way you're supposed to take it, which is in foods, it is an antioxidant. It does seem to reduce this oxidative stress, which is a source of ageing and causation of various diseases such as atherosclerosis. The trouble is that high-dose vitamin C behaves very differently in the body and nobody understands why. It's actually a pro-oxidant. It speeds up. It amplifies oxidative stress. To the extent... Now, now, complementary medicine practitioners who like the idea of high doses of vitamins have been promoting um, vitamin C for use in cancer because they think it's so good for you. But in fact, there are some oncologists... Uh, planning, if not doing, trials of high-dose intravenous vitamin C in cancer, not because it's good for you, but because it's bad for you, in the sense that it increases oxidative stress. And the theory is that high-dose IV vitamin C might assist the killing effect of uh, chemotherapy on cancer cells and might make chemotherapy more effective. Not known yet whether that's true because there are side effects of high-dose vitamin C, but, it, but um, an interesting extra adjunct to cancer treatment. Yeah, that's so interesting. So it wouldn't be the treatment itself, but it would be used to sort of um, as, yeah, an adjuvant for the, the chemo treatment. That's right. 
Okay, so well, while we're in the neighbourhood of talking about COVID, there are a lot of questions um, that, that you've been getting, that we've been getting about when the updated versions of the COVID vaccines are going to be available. Yeah, these are updated for the XBB versions of COVID-19 and they have been registered and approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. I'm told at the time of speaking they've not yet landed in the country and that the uh, government has yet to say when they're going to be available. So they're, it's imminent, but who knows whether it's this side of the new year or the other side of the new year. Oh, well, if you want more of Norman and Tegan talking about COVID-19, we have a massive back catalogue of Coronacast you can listen to. But for now, Norman, tell me about hand arthritis. Well, arthritis of the hands is common and painful and a bit of a mystery, as you're about to hear from somebody who knows a lot about it. Sometimes the hand joints are the only places someone has arthritis. And it can be due to a so-called autoimmune disorder, like rheumatoid arthritis. But that's usually not the cause. And often your doctor will tell you it's osteoarthritis but it doesn't really behave like osteoarthritis and it can be hard to treat, which is why a consortium of researchers have trialled a drug commonly used for rheumatoid arthritis and found some benefit. One of the rheumatologists involved is an old friend of the Health Report, Professor La Flavia Sicutini of Monash University. Welcome back to the Health Report, Flavia. Hello, Norman. Thank you. So just describe this conundrum with hand arthritis. As you described in your introduction, Most doctors are taught that hand osteoarthritis is due to wear and tear, and that happens with ageing. But that's not the case, and research has shown for a number of years that a lot of people with hand osteoarthritis have some level of inflammation. And in fact, if you take a population, do an MRI, more than 50% will have some evidence of inflammation. And what happens is that that inflammation is actually associated with pain and very significant joint damage. And hasn't that been associated with obesity and overweight? Certainly hand osteoarthritis, similar to knee osteoarthritis, is associated with obesity. But the inflammation associated with hand osteoarthritis is probably more than just what we see with obesity. And in fact, there's a particular group of people, women around menopause, who suddenly develop really bad arthritis. And it's an osteoarthritis that is inflammatory. And an old-fashioned name used to be menopausal osteoarthritis. And is it particular joints in the hand? It tends to be the knuckle just near the nail, what we call the distal interphalangeal joint, but also the ones coming down the proximal interphalangeal joint. So it's very much the finger joints, but there's also another subclass, which is pain at the bottom of the thumb. We call that the metacarpal joint, and that's another common spot. But those two groups of joints are common in the hand for hand osteoarthritis, but particularly the the finger joints are the ones with the very inflammatory pattern. And it can be your only arthritis. You don't necessarily have to have arthritis of the hip or knee. No, that's right. So it's quite common for people with knee osteoarthritis also to have some hand osteoarthritis and vice versa. But that hand osteoarthritis, which is the big problem, is often the big problem in an individual. And in fact, one in two women and one in four men will have significant symptoms of pain and stiffness by the time they get to 85. So 
Weight loss reduces pain quite significantly in knee arthritis, and that's thought to be due to the weight-bearing element of it, the stress of the extra weight. But some people have said it's due to the anti-inflammatory effect of weight loss. Does weight loss help hand arthritis? No. In fact, um, when you look at the evidence for weight loss is for the knee, a little bit for the hip and not really for the hand. So you decided to attack the inflammation? Yeah, so what happened was that we've been interested for quite a while, you know, watching this group of people we can't treat. Now, because it is such a big problem, the pharmaceutical companies actually tested the biologic agents. So in rheumatoid arthritis, as you know, there are now a whole lot of very effective drugs that target different chemicals like tumor necrosis factor, IL-6 and so on. So because these drugs were still under patent, they got tested and they don't work for hand osteoarthritis. They work well in rheumatoid, not in hand. And so we thought to ourselves, well, how can that be the case? And so we wondered if that what we should do is take a step back and rather than go down a very specific pathway, which these drugs do, we should take something with a broader action like methotrexate. And so that's why we decided to test methotrexate. And in brief, that's an anti-cancer drug, which is commonly used in rheumatoid as a first-line drug, and it's pretty safe, actually, in low doses. What did you find in terms of the results? So what we found is that um, we had people with significant symptoms from their hand osteoarthritis, and we knew they had some inflammation as well, and we found that there was a significant reduction in their pain and stiffness. So we found an improvement in three months, which was even greater at six months. Is this something that GPs could prescribe, given that it is a disease-modifying agent with some side effects? The answer is yes. Our experience with rheumatoid arthritis is that many GPs are not comfortable with prescribing methotrexate, and so it could be done off-label. It costs $100 a year. We've used it for since the 1980s, but it does need monitoring, and most um, many GPs are not comfortable with knowing just how to start using it. So you might want to get off the ground with a rheumatologist if you can get through a rheumatologist waiting list. Well, in fact, what we're hoping to do is to actually do a methotrexate extend trial where we we did our study because it was during the COVID epidemic. Um, we did it all via telehealth. And so what we want to do is to, re, to extend the trial out, um, answer a few unanswered questions like how long should we treat people for? Should it be 12 months? Which are the populations most likely to benefit? And if you dampen down the inflammation, whether you preserve joints. But we also want to do it as an open label um, a study that we will do via telehealth so we people who may not get to a rheumatologist can access it. Well, when you're ready to recruit, let us know because I'm sure there'll be lots of health report listeners queuing up for the study. Flavia, thanks well, we're for... hoping to do that early next year. We'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> thanks very much, Flavia. Thank you. Bye. Professor Flavia Sicutini of Monash University and you're with the Health Report. Any day you're interacting with a hospital is a big day, maybe unless you work there, but they don't get much bigger than the day you give birth or are born. 
Researchers in Victoria have been closely watching how COVID and lockdowns affected birth in that state, given how long and strict the COVID lockdowns were there. We covered the initial reports in 2021, covering the heaviest periods of lockdowns. And now it's time to look at the after ripples. But first, I've been speaking with Amy O'Brien, who gave birth in Melbourne not once but twice since the pandemic began. And her experience in the public system in 2020 was so negative that she sought private care when it was time to have her second child earlier this year. So my first baby was born in August of 2020 in the peak of lockdowns when we had curfew and wearing masks outside the whole shebang. When I went in from the get-go, everything was really slow and really I never felt like a priority, I suppose. We waited probably four hours to be seen by a doctor and I was in labour. The doctor told me that I wasn't in labour. She didn't think I was in labour because I'd felt reduced movements that, you know, I should be induced. And if I wasn't induced, I had a chance of having a stillbirth. So it wasn't a great feeling. Then she examined me finally and found out actually, no, I was seven centimetres dilated. So (laughs) yeah, was in labour. And then she sent me off to a birth suite. It took about another hour and a half to be seen by a midwife. Then we asked for pain relief. It took, I think, maybe two and a half to three hours for the anaesthetist to make his way to us. He then failed the epidural twice. So then we just decided to go it alone without the help of any pain relief, which was quite the experience. But had a healthy baby, you know, all went well relatively. Then we went off to the ward. My husband obviously had to go home. It was a public hospital. It was in a shared room. And the rules at the time were that you couldn't have your partner there for more than two hours. So I was by myself in the wee hours of the morning trying to breastfeed this baby who I've just met. I've got no idea what I'm doing. And I'm asking for help and not getting it. I pressed call a number of times and no one came. So I went out to the corridor a couple of times looking for people and they were often just, they would say, yeah, I'm busy. I'll come to you. I'll see you soon. I'll see you soon. But they didn't. I asked for Panadol. I didn't get that. I had this baby with no pain relief and then I'm still not getting any pain relief mm. after the fact. And then the midwife attending the woman in the bed next to me who'd had a cesarean, so obviously major surgery, was speaking about me to the other woman and saying that I was needing help and that that was a bit of an imposition. I felt really uncomfortable. You know, I wasn't really asking for much. I was just asking for someone to give me a hand with breastfeeding. I don't know what I'm doing. After having absolutely no support from the staff, my husband finally came in for the the allotted two hours and we said, look, can we just go home because I need some support? You know, we went home, I think it was 11 p.m. at night. The baby screamed all night, didn't know how to feed her, didn't know what we were doing. A few days later, developed mastitis, had huge oversupply issues, had the help of a really amazing private lactation consultant who I'd found through a friend of mine. And she was basically on call with us for the first three weeks of my daughter's life, um, helping us. You know, she even told me how to bath the baby, all of these things that we weren't taught in hospital because no one had the time really Mm. to show us. I do tell my friends, just go private. The message to the public system is really, you know, obviously appreciate that everyone's overworked and that they've got a huge amount of patience to deal with. But I suppose that for someone giving birth, it's a huge deal. And while they see it every day and it's all normal to them, for that person, it might be a once in a lifetime or a twice in a lifetime experience. And it's really, really fundamental to their relationship with their child and their own body. And, you know, they should be treated not as a number, but as a person and someone going through something really big and really important. Melbourne mum Amy O'Brien there with seven-month-old Alfie making a little cameo in the background. And some of the adaptations that Victorian hospitals made during the height of COVID have persisted. 
for better or worse, well past the lockdown phases, including shorter hospital stays after birth. Lisa Hoy was lead author on the Safer Care Victoria COVID-19 communique looking into this, and I spoke to her earlier. During the pandemic, we were aware that we'd made really big changes to the way we deliver maternity care, for example, telehealth and reducing the hospital length of stay for mothers and babies so that they could get home and not be exposed to the risk of acquiring an infection in hospital. What we've seen in this recent analysis of statewide data is that reduction in length of stay for mothers and babies has actually persisted well past the end of lockdown and the state of emergency. So it seems as though the shorter length of stay is the new normal for having a baby in Victoria. And in addition to the shorter length of stay, what you've also seen is a slight uptick in readmissions. In association with the reduction in length of stay, we saw an increase in unplanned readmissions of babies. Suggests that perhaps it's not a great experience for everyone. Yeah, talk me through some of the reasons why people are being readmitted. The two groups that were statistically significantly increased have been readmissions for feeding problems and readmissions for infection-related conditions. So your data looks specifically at Victoria, which obviously had the hardest and heaviest and longest lockdown. So it really kind of shows you the scale of that problem really boldly. When you speak to your colleagues in other states, is there an indication that the same sorts of things might be happening, but maybe just at a scale that we're not noticing as much? I don't think the other states have done the detailed analysis that we have done. And that's simply because for Victoria, you know, we did have an experience that was very different to the rest of the country. So it would be great to see if the other states are able to analyse their experience as well so we can do a comparison. During 2021 and 2020, the imperative really was there to sort of keep people out of hospital as much as possible to protect them and then also to protect the resources of the health system. But we're not in that phase of the pandemic anymore. And yet we're still seeing some of these trends persisting. I think for me as a clinician, I think it's important for us to actually understand the parents' experience behind these statistics. On paper, it might look like a success story for you know, a health service or the government who has to fund the hospital beds, but we need to make sure that women and families are getting the postnatal support they need, particularly the first few weeks of life where babies are establishing breastfeeding. I think the readmissions for feeding problems is probably only the tip of the iceberg. If we're going to encourage women to go home early, then we do need to provide them with support at home. Yeah, home midwife visits, improving resources for the maternal and child health nurse in the community and GPs who are also having to deal with a lot of the postnatal issues that generally don't come back to the hospital until they get very severe. I mean, the hospital isn't necessarily the best place for someone to be. You generally don't want to be in a hospital. What is the gold standard when it comes to post-birth care? Yeah, I, I agree. The hospital isn't a great place to be if you don't need to be there. And as well as the concerns with readmissions of babies, there were fewer maternal readmissions for postpartum infections and wound complications. So there are benefits as well, definitely, to going home. I think what we need to do is make sure that for those women, particularly first-time mothers who want to stay more than a day or two in hospital to get breastfeeding established and to recover, that they shouldn't be made to feel like they're an inconvenience or that they're making excessive demands. So I think we should make, particularly for first-time mothers, the expectation of, you know, going home in the first day. I don't think we should put that pressure on them. And then we haven't defined 
the gold standard for the ideal length of stay. I think that is very individual, sort of where we're at now. It looks like everyone's going home or a lot of people are going home a day sooner than they used to before the pandemic. So what are your recommendations to the health system then? We want a public health system that does a great job at helping people be well in whatever sort of setting that they end up being. And in this case, we're talking about birth. What should change in Victoria? I think we need more information before we make firm recommendations. I think the data we've got here actually tells us that we should actually be understanding the consumer experience of going home early from hospital, particularly first-time parents. And I think we need to evaluate the adequacy of domiciliary and community care for new parents and babies with a particular focus on breastfeeding rates and preventing unplanned readmissions. What can other states learn from this data in Vic or what can Victoria learn from what's being done well in other states? So I think what other states can learn from Victoria is that we can rethink the way we deliver maternity care and make it more flexible. I think the integration between hospital and community care is really important given we're moving to shorter lengths of stay and also retaining other changes that occurred during the pandemic like the use of telehealth for antenatal care. Oh, Lisa, thanks so much again for joining me. Thank you. Associate Professor Lisa Hoy is a maternal fetal medicine specialist at the Mercy Hospital for Women and the Northern Hospital and a researcher at the University of Melbourne and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Well, just briefly, I mean, there are some really interesting results in that report. During the period of COVID compared to pre-COVID, there were reduced rates of premature babies being delivered. Not just spontaneous, but iatrogenic, in other words, caused by doctors, either because they get the dates wrong or they're induced at term. Reduced severely low birth weight babies, reduced fetal distress and reduced admissions to neonatal intensive care. And on the other side of the ledger, more babies that were large for gestational age, more overweight and obesity amongst mothers, and, and again, unsurprisingly, more Uh, babies being born in transit to the hospital, either in the ambulance or in a car, and more home births, either planned or unplanned. So quite a lot of ramifications there from probably sitting at home and not getting out and exercising quite as much. Um, those probably those two things are probably related in, in those two types of results. Really interesting. It, it's interesting that you call out the increased weight in babies and mums and the high rate of gestational diabetes because I didn't get to include it in the tape that I just played, but Lisa did call that out and said it is actually a trend that their data shows goes back to before the pandemic as well. Ah, not co- at least one thing not due to COVID. <laughs> Let's move on, because we're going to talk about blood cancers now. We don't talk often about blood cancers on the health report, yet they often affect people younger than the average person who develops cancer. I'm talking about leukaemias, lymphomas, myelomas, and conditions that are somewhere in between. What's not often realised is that Australia and New Zealand haematologists have been pioneers in trialling new treatments. And this year marks the 50th anniversary of the clinical trial group that coordinates these studies, a long-standing member of which is Mark Hertzberg, who's Professor of Haematology at the University of Sydney. Welcome to The Health Report, Mark. Thank you for having me, Norman. How much different is the landscape now treating blood cancers compared to 50 years ago? I think it's changed enormously, Norman. Um, uh, first, uh, we've got new drugs. So instead of the conventional chemotherapeutic drugs that people would be used to, we've now got targeted therapies, which are uh, highly specific, uh, much better tolerated, and uh, you know target specific pathways. I think secondly is, you know, we have this great science that underpins everything. So this uh, the, the scientific rigor and robustness 
of the um, research has enabled us to apply the, the new drugs to treatment of patients with these blood cancers. So which blood cancers have, have really transformed in this process? Because not all have. No, you're right, not all have. Some have done more so than others. Uh, a few specific examples would be chronic mild leukaemia, which you would have heard, where we have targeted therapies that now enable patients to live what is essentially a normal lifespan. Uh, secondly, uh, a couple of rarer ones, such as uh, acute promyelocytic leukaemia, where Australian researchers were at the forefront of bringing non-chemotherapeutic drugs. So this is vitamin A and arsenic. That's right, exactly. And um, um, my colleagues in, in, um, in Australia have been able to bring those drugs to clinical trials, enabling patients to avoid conventional chemotherapy and curing more than 90% of these patients. And these patients are often very young. What about, the other, what about lymphomas? Because I noticed Sam Neill, the actor Sam Neill, has come out about his lymphoma, yet he's back at work after treatment. How are we going with lymphomas? So lymphomas, we're doing very well also. Um, for example, in Hodgkin lymphoma, which affects young people, and young people need to get back to work and their normal life, we're curing more patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, for an example, than ever before. And we were able to recently participate in a very large collaborative group study with the German cooperative group. Even in non-Hodgkin lymphomas, we're doing much better because we have targeted therapies, we have maintenance therapies, so that patients, uh, even if they're not cured, are living close to normal uh, lifespans and uh, able to uh, get back to enjoy life with their family and with their work. Yeah, there's one form of leukaemia that's really, and it's quite a common one, which is quite resistant so far to improved survival, and that's uh, acute myeloid leukaemia. Yes, acute myeloid leukaemia has been uh, one of the Why is it most so tough? difficult. Oh, look, it's, it's tough because it often occurs in older patients. Um, they have resistance mutations and they acquire those mutations with treatment. Uh, treatment has been toxic to date. Uh, we do have bone marrow transplantation that can cure many patients. It's just that uh, it's, it's, the, it's the molecular biology behind it all. And so resistance mechanisms kick in and make it somewhat difficult to treat. So we are improving that because we've got molecular means now of monitoring early relapse and we're about to uh, conduct a trial where we're detecting uh, relapse much earlier so that we can intervene earlier and uh, provide opportunities where patients uh, can uh, respond to treatment without the toxicities that they might otherwise have experienced. And the, the, you mentioned bone marrow transplantation. So that's essentially where you, you know, the bone marrow is where you produce white and red blood cells, and you and it's where a lot of these tumours arise, why the blood cancers. You knock off the, the existing bone marrow with using chemotherapy and radiation, and then you transplant, hopefully, a good match from somebody else back in, or the person's own bone marrow back in if it's been treated. How much, how much are we relying on bone marrow transplantation these days? And, and it is a risky procedure. Look, we are still relying upon it for, for many patients with acute mild leukaemia. Uh, we've been able to increase the age at which transplants have been able to be undertaken. Previously, we did them up to the age of 55. Now we're going in 70 and beyond. Uh, we're getting better at supportive care measures and we're getting it better at matching. And so we're relying upon the donor cells not only to take over the bone marrow, but to kill the residual leukaemia that's there. And it's not, but it's not just in acute myeloid leukaemia, it's in other blood cancers as well. It is in other blood cancers. It used to be in chronic myeloid leukaemia. That was the most common indication. Now we never do those. So it's mostly confined uh, the uh, donor bone marrow um, 
transplantation is mostly confined for acute leukemias, acute myeloid and acute lymphoblastic leukemias. And just briefly, one of the issues here is the eye-watering cost of some of these treatments. So people do research into it, and yet the, and the drug companies go and take that research and then they feed it back. I mean, one very advanced form of treatment is training T-cells to attack the tumour. It can cost anywhere between three and $500,000 for a treatment. I mean, are we being done over here on cost from the drug companies? Well, these technologies are very expensive. Um, the better we get at it, the more we use them, the cost will fall. Um, and, of course, we do have other agents that are analogous, such as immunomodulatory agents and uh, bispecific antibodies that may well do a similar job for less money. Look, it is expensive, um, but I think the cost will fall over time and uh, we're getting more opportunities to use those modalities more than we've ever had before. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for you. Thanks, Norman. Mark Hertzberg, who's Professor of Hematology at the University of Sydney. And that's the Health Report for this week. But we'll see you again next week. We sure will. G'day. I'm tech reporter James Pertul. I've watched AI go from the fringes of science. You hear that? It's like Anya or something. To being everywhere. Completely putting my faith in the technology. It's writing essays. That would count as cheating. Driving my brother around. The car just arrived. And wrongly putting people in jail. He's like, so that's not you? And I'm like... No. So how did we get here? Where's next? In the new series of Science Friction, I'm finding out. Science Friction, 5pm Sundays on RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.